do have words of eternal life. Words that speak to us of your enduring love. You who are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Speak to us through your word, we pray. Lord, open my lips that my mouth should proclaim your praise. Amen. Just go ahead and be seated. I've had several conversations in recent weeks around the enduring nature of classics. Classic music, classic literature, my personal favorite topic of which I am a bit of an expert, classic rock. But talking about the different things that make classics, classics. You know, Avengers Endgame, great movie. But 50 years from now, are people going to go back to it time and time again and just be nurtured and nourished by it? I'm not sure about that. As we discussed around the table one night, the enduring nature of classic literature, epic stories such as Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, that's what we were actually specifically talking about, Sarah reminded us of a quote she had rediscovered of C.S. Lewis's. Lewis said, No book is really worth reading at age 10, which is not equally, and often far more, worth reading at the age of 50 and beyond. No book is worth reading at 10 that is not even more so worth reading at 50. Gives us pause to consider the entertainment that we spend and, let's be frank, oftentimes waste our time on. But if that statement is true of great works of literature... It is equally, and often far more, true of Scripture. We see that illustrated perfectly in the psalm that we read together this morning, Psalm 30, which you conveniently have in your song sheet, so you can follow along pretty easily. But Psalm 30 was a work of poetic praise that the people of God returned to again and again throughout many generations. And so to understand, appreciate, and apply it, we need to take a look, uh, kind of take three different passes at the psalm, if you will, looking at how it functioned originally in David's life, how it functioned in the life of God's ancient people, and how it functions present tense in the lives of God's people today. So to fully understand and appreciate this psalm, we've got to first understand its, its context. It didn't just you know, appear out of nowhere. It was written out of a context, and it was used within a context. And we're told about that context, actually, in what's called the superscript. I don't think you actually have it in your song sheet. But it says at the beginning of the psalm that this is a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. A psalm of David at the dedication of the temple. We know from the history recorded in the books of First and Second Samuel that after he had achieved all that the Lord had purposed for him as a warrior king, after he had won a hard-fought peace for his people and brought really uh, opened the way for prosperity to come to the land of Israel for the people, David settled down in Jerusalem and then also intended to build a temple for the Lord there in Jerusalem. And we read that the Lord speaks to David through his prophet and declares that it's actually not for David to build the temple, that actually his son Solomon will be the one to do that work. 
So with that as a background, we can appreciate that David composed this psalm before his death to be handed on and used then, sort of his voice speaking into the occasion that he so longed for, the dedication of this temple that was to come after his lifetime. Knowing that setting opens up for our understanding some of the features of the psalm. First, knowing that this is a psalm of David, it really uh, helps us to understand the declaration of verses 1 through 3. David says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. David declares that he will extol the Lord. That word, Hebrew word, rum, means, and yes, it is alliterated or transliterated like rum, but rum means to lift up or make high or esteem. And we've never been a church that teaches that to really praise the Lord, you've got to raise your hands. You know, I mean, there are actually churches that, that teach that. But there is good biblical precedent and reason why some of us do it. There's good biblical reason why actually following the ancient Hebrew tradition, priests, especially when we're standing at the altar, raise up our hands upturned. It's a gestural expression of biblical worship, lifting up, making high, esteeming the God of the universe. Now, David gives us actually three reasons why he lifts up God in this way. First, the Lord delivered him from his foes. Second, the Lord responded when he prayed for healing. And thirdly, the Lord brought him back from the brink of death. Delivered him from his foes, responded to his prayers for healing, and brought him back from the very brink of death. Now, we don't know all of the circumstances that David has in mind as we read these words, but we do know plenty about his life and the circumstances that uh, certainly seem to fit these words. For instance, even after being anointed as the true king of Israel and Judah, David spent his early adulthood running for his life, right? Running from Saul, the, the king who had it out for him and would seemingly stop at nothing to find and kill him. We also know that never stopped David from fighting the battles that Saul and his army should have been fighting, actually, to secure the, the peace and prosperity of the nation. David was truly a warrior and a warrior king, pressed by foes both within and without his homeland. And again and again, throughout his Psalms, he gives God praise for his victories and for the protection that he experienced from his foes. We don't know the circumstances of the healing that David is speaking of. Several of his other psalms make reference to David being on his sickbed, his, his bones racked, wasting away. We also know in Psalm 51, after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, David prays for healing and restoration. He prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me which raises the possibility that perhaps the answered prayer and healing he's referencing, it doesn't have to be a, a, a physical ailment. Similarly, his third reason, redemption from the pit. 
Now, there were certainly times when David, uh, in his life, in those various battles, I'm sure couldn't help but feel like he had looked into the face of death and barely made it, right? In battle, hiding in the back of a cave when Saul comes lingering in to spend some quality time with the morning paper. Feeling the depths of his sin and separation from God, though, that blotted him and his grace from David's presence. Again, whether David has a literal or a figurative spiritual death in mind, David, by this point at the end of his life, knows full well that but for the grace of God, he'd be a dead man. But although David begins this psalm with very personal declarations of praise, he is penning a psalm to be used corporately by the ancient people of God at the dedication of the temple, the place toward which his son Solomon will say, toward which all prayer should be addressed. And that's why he goes on in verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. David is giving witness, but he's saying, people of God, this is not unique to me. This is not just uniquely my story. This is our story. This is your experience too. You too have experienced the ups and downs of life. You too have known the weeping of the bitter watches of the night. I'm not the only one who's ever sinned when you walked away from God and you have experienced his displeasure too. So this corporate context became all the more important especially after Israel was carried off into exile and the temple was destroyed. Because that's exactly what the people of Judah experienced, the bitter watch, if you will. Seventy years of oppression, weeping, directly linked to their own disobedience and the consequent anger of God. The people could resonate with David's experience. Perhaps especially what he said in verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Then you hid my fa- your face and I was dismayed. David is declaring there that sometimes suffering can be self-inflicted. David, in a few brief words, paint a picture, paints a picture of mistaking the Lord's goodness and favor for self-driven success and security. That was precisely the state of God's people as they went off into exile. In accordance with his promises to the patriarchs, God blessed his people and he gave them a long season of prosperity in the land. So long that as many before and many since have experienced, that prosperity led to forgetfulness led to a a forgetting of where that prosperity had come from, who was responsible for it. It's not hard to begin to feel secure, self-satisfied, self-sufficient when we're experiencing blessing, which begins to stir a feeling of entitlement, pride, forgetfulness, of the obligations that come with acknowledging God as the giver of all good gifts. Those are exactly the conditions that led 
God to send the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to chasten his people. They forgot God. They ignored his requirements, especially the ones that they not forget the poor among them. They believed in their pride that they were unassailable. Their mountain was strong. And that their prosperity would endure forever. And so God sent these nations to disabuse them of their false notions and cure them of their pride. The nation learned what David spoke of. You hid your face. We were dismayed. So when the Lord brought the people back to the land and the temple was rebuilt and dedicated, how very appropriate for them to pray together. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. They had endured God's anger, but the restoration was a sure sign of his enduring favor and promises. He had not utterly forsaken them. They experienced his discipline, but also the hope of his grace. But now fast forward about 300 years, and this psalm takes on a greater significance yet again. Because if that earlier episode reminded the people that sometimes suffering is self-inflicted, their experience 300 years would remind them that suffering is not always self-inflicted. Sometimes the righteous suffer for righteousness' sake. After a period of autonomy where most of their problems were relatively small, the kingdom of Judah once again came under threat of the next great world power, the Greeks. And things came once again to crisis point under the Greek tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. Because when he conquered Palestine, one of his policies to really to demoralize and subjugate the Jews was to defile the temple. And so he sacrificed pigs, you know, unclean animals, sacrificed pigs on the altar and then sprinkled pig's blood in the Holy of Holies, desecrating the temple. What Antiochus did not count on, though, was the way that that would galvanize Jewish resistance. And so a rebel band of guerrilla fighters under Judas Maccabeus, Maccabeus means the hammer, love that guy, Judas Maccabeus, drove the Greeks out of the land. No one failed to appreciate that this was a feat only accomplished by the grace of God. I mean, they were a ragtag bunch, but they beat the most powerful army in the world. These events gave birth to the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, as it is still celebrated even today. It was in the context of this feast that this psalm found much of its significance throughout the ages of God's people. This was the feast where the temple was cleansed and where that eight-day miracle of the oil that was meant to be burning on the lampstand uh, didn't run out over those eight days. And from that day to this, Psalm 30 became a prominent part of the festival liturgy. The people could resonate with David's words. What profit is there in our death? Will the dust praise you here? Be merciful, Lord. But likewise, they could give testimony that God is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger and abounding in love. There is always hope. Weeping may spend the night, but joy comes in the morning. Now fast forward one more time. 
And we see this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment and meaning for the people of God today. The New Testament speaks of the way that in former times, God spoke through through types and, and shadows, pointing ultimately to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The full revelation of the meaning of all that came before him. This hymn of dedication is no exception. In fact, we read in John's Gospel, when Jesus entered the temple for the first time and cleansed it, well, not for the first time, but in his adult ministry, entered the temple for the first time and cleansed it. And the Jewish rulers demanded, what sign can you give us that you have the authority to do this? You remember what he said to him? He said, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then John goes on to explain, the Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus himself, in his body, was the true temple the place where the living presence of Almighty God made his dwelling place with humankind. Likewise, in the Revelation, in chapter 21, when St. John sees the the end of all things and the new heavenly Jerusalem descending uh, down and, and declares the dwelling place of God is with man, he notes this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. You see, ultimately, these words of Psalm 30 find their fulfillment in Christ, the Lamb, the temple of the living God. And so we read these words again out of that context. Just a few weeks ago, as we walked through the events of Holy Week, we had the opportunity to watch with Jesus at the end of the Maundy Thursday service, the church inviting us to remember the agony of Christ in the garden where he prayed, Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from my lips. Striking how his prayer expresses the same agony, the same sentiment as David's. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? The author to the Hebrews reminds us of that moment of agony, saying, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He mirrored David and and all of the people of God throughout history in his suffering. But he also pointed to the grace and mercy of God. And he was heard, Hebrews said. And he was heard. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, we encountered God's hearing and God's answering. Jesus could ultimately say, weeping may last the night, or three, but joy comes in the morning. Of whom have the words ever been truer? You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. As the grave clothes were laid aside 
And Christ was clothed in a glorious resurrection body. Here is the ultimate application of David's words. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Father Patrick Henry Reardon, reflecting on Psalm 30, says this. Old Israel's winter feast of dedication is now the new Israel, that is the church's spring feast of Pasha, Easter. For Christ is the true temple. And he goes on, Christ is the true David, the new Israel's sweet psalmist, our songmaster in the eternal praise of God. Sing praises to the Lord, you his saints, and give thanks to the remembrance of his holy name. To the end that my glory, which is a Hebrew word for my whole person, my whole being, may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will sing praise to you forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the witness of King David, the psalmist. It is the experience of our Lord Christ. It is the testimony of all the saints of God in every generation. We may well endure weeping for the night. As an insomniac who does some of my best overthinking between the hours of about 3.30 and 6, I know the experience of those night watches that feel like they will never end. But the sun always rises. No matter what is happening in life, the sun always rises in the morning. And Psalm 30 ties into that image from the physical world to speak hope. It may feel like the dark night of the soul or the the circumstances that are just burying you, the cares that prey upon your mind. It may feel like they will never go away. But just as the sun always comes up in the morning, the Lord can always be relied upon. The Lord can always be relied upon to show up in the midst. Not always to miraculously change those circumstances, but to give the hope and the the sustaining strength of his presence. Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears in the night watches, and he was heard and answered in the resurrection. And that is the experience offered to all those who are found in Christ. Christ is our hope. It's not just a great name for a church. It's a truth that we proclaim. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is resident in you, his people. So that even in the midst of the pit, our whole glory can praise him. And we can trust that though weeping may tarry for the night, joy is coming. Even if it doesn't come until that final bright morning when the sun of righteousness will return and pour forth his light of new creation, joy will come. Joy comes in the morning, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your people. We thank you for the ancient testimony of your servant David, who knew a lot about oppression from foes, living, feeling like his life was in his hand, who knew the long watches of weeping, 
but who also knew the glory, the hope of the risen Son. Lord, we thank you that in your resurrection you have spoken hope again to your people, that you have paved the way to live in the hope of glory, that truly with our whole glory, our whole being, we might praise you even in the midst. So, Lord, it's to you, our Lord and our God, that we do give glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.